On the morning of Wednesday, May 31, 1978, Phyllis Blasey had the house to herself for a few hours. Her son, Sean, was seven years old, and his sisters were ten and twelve. Phyllis had gotten them off to school, and her husband, Whitey, was on the job as a truck driver. The Blazies had just moved into their newly constructed house, and 31-year-old Phyllis had no shortage of projects that morning. She had already baked a fresh cherry pie that was sitting on the counter cooling. At 10.30 a.m., she was on the phone in the kitchen with a friend. Phyllis had only a few minutes to talk because she was due to volunteer at Sean's elementary school at 11. Suddenly, Phyllis told her friend she heard a noise, and it sounded like someone was outside. She said goodbye, hung up the phone, and went to check. She never arrived at school that morning, and it was seven-year-old Sean who found her when he arrived home at about 2 p.m. The first thing Sean remembers seeing is bloody paw prints and finding both of the family dogs anxiously running around the house. The dogs were covered in blood. His mother was in her bedroom, lying face down at the foot of the bed. The noise she heard was an intruder with a gun, and he shot Phyllis three times in the back of the head. Police had very few clues. The night before the murder, Whitey had been awakened by a noise that sounded like someone on the front porch, but his investigation turned up nothing, and he returned to bed. A neighbor about a half mile away from the Blazies heard the fatal shots around 10.30 a.m., but didn't report them since it was a rural area, and it didn't seem unusual. Other than an unknown man seen riding a horse, there were no possible suspect or vehicle sightings, and it appeared that the intruder did not need to break into the house since the doorknobs and locks were not yet fully installed. Phyllis's green AMC Hornet was still sitting undisturbed in the carport. The only evidence left by the killer appeared to be an unsmoked cigarette found in the area of the front door and a discarded smoked butt of the same brand somewhere outside. The motive appeared to be robbery. The burglar had been unusually thorough, but had taken little of monetary value. The top shelf in the closet of the master bedroom held about a dozen boxes, and each one had been moved into the bedroom and then arranged in a neat, stacked line on the floor in front of the dresser. The closet shelf also held a green metal lockbox with a pair of twenty-two caliber handguns. The box was open, but neither gun was taken. However, the killer did take the twenty-two ammunition stored in the box and a Remington three hundred eight rifle from the same closet. The killer also spent a lot of time going through Phyllis's jewelry box on the dresser. He found a dozen half-dollar coins from the 1800s wrapped in foil, opened it, took ten of them, and left two of them displayed in the open box. Also missing from the jewelry box was a necklace made from a 1946 silver half-dollar on a silver chain. The necklace had been made by Phyllis's grandmother, who had also made matching ones for Phyllis's mother and sister. We have a photo of one of these on the unsolved map and our website. You can also find photos of matching half-dollar coins and the rifle. Coins were also missing from the bedrooms of each of the Blazy daughters, and the killer had taken the family's Polaroid camera. Phyllis's purse was found open in the kitchen, and there was much debate about whether or not it had contained a $5 bill. Somehow, most disturbing to the Blazy family was the pie. The killer took the fresh-baked cherry pie that had been cooling in the kitchen. The oddity of the items taken, while other more valuable property was ignored, presented a problem for El Dorado Sheriff's investigators working the case. The house was new and sat up off a private road. The burglar would have no obvious excuse for being on that part of the road, let alone in the blazy yard. Also, he didn't shoot Phyllis after being surprised by her coming home. It's likely she was standing in the kitchen when he entered the house. Why not just run away? As we've discussed before, at length, daytime burglars generally have a plan for such situations, and it does not involve killing the homeowners. Worst case, you can imagine the intruder tying up Phyllis, giving him more time to escape. Investigators have never seen such a brazen burglary and murder, and they could not make sense of it. It did not take long for an alternate picture of the murder to emerge. If the motive was not a bungled burglary, 
then someone must have targeted Phyllis. Her husband Whitey was at work, and there were no signs of strife or other motive for him to arrange for someone else to kill her. However, Phyllis did have a known enemy, her neighbor, Mr. Smith. The Smiths had built their dream retirement home on Aroby Drive and moved onto the road in September 1976. The troubles between the families started just two months later, when the Blazies first came to look at the neighboring lot for possible purchase. On that visit, Mr. Smith complained about the children making too much noise, and when they returned the next month, the Blazies found their fence cut and the road torn up near their water line. As they investigated, Mr. Smith yelled at them and threatened to call the police despite the fact that no one was on his property. Mr. Smith's mood did not improve in the new year. In March 1977, while the Blazies were clearing their building site, Mr. Smith confronted some visitors and accused them of destroying his road. In April, he complained about the siting of the Blazies' driveway, and in June, he presented them with a list of perceived grievances that revolved around the children playing. Mr. Smith threatened to install a gate on Arrowby Drive, or tear it up with a bulldozer, and make it impassable. As Phyllis wrote in her notes, Mr. Smith appeared irrational and could not be appeased. In July 1977, Mr. Smith turned to local officials for assistance. However, when the county inspector could find no violations, Mr. Smith threatened to go over his head and was no less pleased when the Forest Service fire inspector could find no hazards on the Blazy property. In mid-August, the dispute took another personal turn as Mr. Smith confronted the Blazies on the road and accused them of throwing nails in his driveway. A sheriff's deputy soon arrived, but did not satisfy either family. Phyllis wrote, We explained the harassment we had been subjected to and were told we could do nothing about it. The next week, things got personal between Phyllis and Mr. Smith. In a profanity-laced tirade, Mr. Smith accused the Blazy children of destroying his property and he ordered them to stay inside their house. Phyllis told Mr. Smith to refrain from speaking to her children in the future and made it clear that all concerns should be directed to her personally. Mr. Smith refused to stop, and in another bout of profanity, he accused the Blazies of sneaking into their house in the middle of the night to antagonize his family. Phyllis called the sheriff, but the result was much the same. Quote, the sheriff came and explained, the profanity towards myself and the children was a very great issue, couldn't be proven, and that, in essence, he could do nothing, wrote Phyllis. There was no peace. Later that afternoon, while the children were in the driveway waiting for their father to come home, Mr. Smith again approached them, and Phyllis told him to stop, and suggested he should be ashamed of himself for swearing at the children. When Phyllis explained that he was not going to drive them away, he replied that he would see about that. Shortly after that encounter, the Blazies' property was set on fire in what the Forest Service determined was an arson. Also in September 1977, the Blazies received a letter from the Homeowners Association requesting easement and road maintenance fees that Mr. Smith insisted that they owed. The fees had been paid six years earlier, and when the association informed Mr. Smith, he, quote, left in a rage when they would not concede to his demands. There is no way to paraphrase the entry Phyllis wrote for October 1977, so these are her words. Upon Mr. Smith's return from a weekend trip, we were accused of breaking into his house and cutting hose on his air compressor. In trying to talk rationally to him and resolve our differences, Mr. Smith appeared depressed and made the statement that sometimes he feels like taking a gun and shooting everyone in the world and then blowing his brains out. He again threatened to hire a tractor and tear up the road. He expressed fear and stated that he keeps his gun loaded at all times. Those are the words of a man on the brink, and it's impossible to imagine that a few kids playing in their driveway had driven a man to armed desperation. What of the accusations of home break-ins, vandalism, and late-night stalking? The Blazies were just as mystified as Mr. Smith. November remained relatively quiet. 
with only a letter from Mr. Smith's attorney falsely claiming that Arrowby was to Smith's private road. Thanksgiving 1977 brought a few new possibilities. At 11.25 p.m., Phyllis answered the phone by saying hello, but there was only 20 seconds of silence, and the caller hung up. Just as Phyllis and Whitey got back to sleep, at 12.05 a.m., they were reawakened by an El Dorado sheriff's deputy arriving at the house. The deputy asked if the Blazies had two daughters at home, which was both bizarre and alarming. Without explaining, the deputy responded that the neighbor had reported receiving annoying phone calls, which were a felony offense. The deputy warned the Blazies that the calls and caller's voice were on tape. The Blazies then watched the deputy return to the Smith driveway where his patrol car was parked. At 12.15 a.m., just after the deputy departed, Phyllis answered the phone again to silence and a hang-up. Just to be clear here, the Blazy girls, aged 10 and 12, had been asleep in their beds, not making phone calls to the Smiths. The only phone in the house was the one in the kitchen. Someone else had called the Smiths, and those calls were taped. Presumably, the same person was also calling the Blazies and hanging up. The deputy blamed the Blazy girls, and the neighbors blamed each other. Nobody realized that a stranger was harassing both families. Was the actual target the Smiths' attractive teen daughter, who was home from college for the holiday? Was the stranger also breaking into the Smiths' house, committing acts of vandalism and setting fires? Was he watching to see how long it took police and fire to respond? The stranger was back in January 1978. He broke into the Smith's home and stole a flashlight. Mr. Smith added that to his list of accusations against the Blazies and renewed his threats to prevent them from driving on Arrowby. Mr. Smith's obsession with the belief that the road was his was irrational and had been disproven to him multiple times in 1977, yet he could not let it go. The other lot owners along Arrowby had paid for easements and contributed to its maintenance by written agreement. This wasn't a gray area or misunderstanding. Mr. Smith just seemed unable to accept the truth. On March 19, 1978, Phyllis and Whitey were away for the weekend and had friends staying at the house with the kids. About an hour after the Blazies returned home, Mr. Smith approached their property and began destroying their fence. When confronted, he insisted that it was his fence. Mr. Smith started yelling and became irrational, so the Blazies returned to their house and shut the door. Shortly after the confrontation, the friends tried to leave, only to find that Mr. Smith had blocked Arrowby with his car. Another confrontation ensued, with the Blazies threatening to call the sheriff and Mr. Smith saying he already had. Mr. Smith then shoved the female friend with his car until the Blazies and their visitors retreated back up the driveway. When the deputy arrived, Mr. Smith was blocking the end of the Blazies' driveway and refused to move. The deputy took an assault report against Mr. Smith, informed him that he could not prevent them from using the road, and told the friends to leave. When they attempted to go, Mr. Smith stood in the road until the deputy physically removed him. Mr. Smith threatened the deputy and demanded his badge number, but somehow escaped being arrested. Later that day, he called the sheriff's office and demanded that charges be filed against the deputy for assaulting him. At 7.45 p.m., the Blazies heard a gunshot, quickly turned off all the lights, and called the sheriff. Mr. Smith then proceeded to honk his car horn for the next five minutes. Once again, no action was taken. This is where Phyllis's notes about Mr. Smith end. She was killed two months later. It was no surprise that Mr. Smith quickly became the main suspect in Phyllis's murder. There was one tiny problem. Mr. Smith and his wife had gone to Lake Tahoe for the Memorial Day weekend and were still there when Phyllis was murdered, and their alibi was unshakable. There was no way that Mr. Smith was the noise Phyllis heard by the back door. Eldorado investigators felt that the alibi meant only one thing, Mr. Smith had hired someone to kill Phyllis. They found a cash withdrawal that they believed supported their theory, but it turned out to be the funds for the trip to Lake Tahoe. 
In order to consider the hitman scenario, we feel it needs to overcome some obvious logic challenges. Why would a hitman use a 22? That's an extremely small and unreliable caliber for a professional killer. Why didn't the hitman use a silencer or even attempt to muffle the shots? Why wasn't Phyllis killed in the kitchen where she first encountered the intruder? Was it easy to find a hitman to murder a mother of three in rural El Dorado County in 1978? Where would a retired civil servant find such a ruthless killer? How would killing Phyllis solve Mr. Smith's problems? The Blazy children would still be there making noise, and Whitey was just as likely to defend his children or call the sheriff. For that matter, how were the Blazies even the problem? Mr. Smith did not want anyone living near his home or sharing the private road. Killing Phyllis would not make the Blazy house disappear. Why had the killer taken the time to go through Phyllis's jewelry, but only take the coin necklace and the silver dollars? Why leave two of the dollars on display? Why did the killer take down all of the boxes from the shelves in the bedroom, go through them, and neatly restack them on the floor? If the killer were interested in keeping or reselling firearms, why did he take the 308 rifle but leave the 22 handguns? How did Mr. Smith finance the hit if the only missing funds were spent in Tahoe? The answers that El Dorado investigators eventually settled on was that the Smiths hadn't lost the money gambling in Tahoe and that Mr. Smith was particularly angry at Phyllis for confronting him when he yelled at the children. As for the odd theft behavior, they concluded that the hitman was supposed to make it look like a burglary gone bad, and that was his terrible attempt. Since investigators were unable to identify the hitman and connect him to Mr. Smith, the case quickly hit a dead end. Whitey turned over the Araby house and mortgage to some friends and took the kids back to Sacramento. To the shock of no one, Mr. Smith was not any happier with the new neighbors than he had been with the Blazies. The disputes continued to center around the use of the private road, and five months after Phyllis's murder, on Monday, November 20, 1978, Mr. Smith rented a jackhammer and began tearing up Araby Drive. The road won. Mr. Smith had a fatal heart attack. The only suspect in Phyllis's murder was dead, and so was the investigation. Whitey and Phyllis had moved to Araby Drive with so much hope and promise. When they first looked at the property in November of 1976, they had been raising their family in Sacramento, with the backyard pressing right up against busy Watt Avenue. Sacramento was changing, and the big city problems made them long for a safer outdoor lifestyle, especially for the kids. Although most of the community was still unaware of the EAR, he had raped the daughter of one of Phyllis's friends, and, after discussing the attack, they decided to look at making the move. In January 1977, the EAR hit on their side of Watt Avenue, just a couple blocks from their house, and in February, he struck their neighborhood again and shot Rodney Miller. The Blazies were concerned and attended two of the community meetings that the police and sheriff held to discuss the EAR attacks. The EAR continued to hit the Blazies' neighborhood throughout 1977, but by that summer the family decided to move into a trailer on the Araby property while Whitey finished the remaining house construction. He built the house almost entirely by himself, only needing to hire a few subcontractors along the way. By May 1978, the entire family was relieved to finally move out of the trailer and into the house, and the Memorial Day weekend had been a good one. They had spent time at nearby Ice House Lake, and Whitey and Phyllis decided to take the Tuesday after the holiday off work to nurse their painful sunburns. As they worked around the house, Whitey noticed a stranger's vehicle come up off the private road into their driveway and watched them work. When Whitey moved to approach the car, the stranger quickly backed out and drove away. That stranger seemed no more odd than the man who had sat in his car and watched Phyllis sunbathe at Ice House that weekend. It was noticeable, but hardly unusual, since Phyllis was tall and fit, with blonde hair and blue eyes. Her daughter helped draw a composite of the man, and presumably it still sits in Phyllis's case file 
with the El Dorado County Sheriff's Office. Strangely, after the Blazies moved to Rancho Cordova in 1978, they noticed that the man at the lake looked like the composite of the man that shot the Majores less than four months before Phyllis was killed. One thing that's confusing about Aerobe Drive on the map is the difference between its status as a small private drive in 1978 and the major county road that it is today. It's the preferred route to Lake Aerobe, not a glorified shared driveway. Nearby Lotus Road is the main north-south route in the area, and if you'd been driving on Lotus on Saturday, March 10, 1990, about a mile and a half north of the turnoff to Aerobe, you would have passed the Kingsley residence set back off the road about 300 feet. Kip Kingsley had left for work about 8 o'clock that morning, but his wife, 59-year-old Nancy Kingsley, was home. Kip returned home from work at 4.30 that afternoon and found Nancy dead on the kitchen floor. She'd been shot multiple times with a small-caliber handgun, which was not found at the scene. There were no signs of forced entry, but the house had been ransacked. The only specific items reported missing were a portable phone and Nancy's light blue two-tone Buick station wagon. Nancy's time of death was estimated at between 10.30 and 11.30 a.m. that morning. Witness canvassing turned up exactly nothing. Nobody heard the shots or saw anyone in the area that morning. Obviously, we have more questions than answers about Nancy Kingsley's murder. Was she shot with a twenty-two? Was she shot in the head? What exactly did investigators mean when they said that the house had been ransacked? Were any small items or coins missing? Was Nancy's car ever found, and if so, where? Was there anything else strange, like unidentified cigarettes, empty beer cans, or food eaten at the scene? Eldorado investigators never developed a rational motive for the murder. Eventually, they dismissed robbery and settled on car theft, with Nancy killed so as not to leave a witness. The Kingsleys had no known enemies, and Nancy was well-liked by the customers who shopped at her store, Papa's Pro Jersey, located in Country Club Center in the Arden Arcade neighborhood of Sacramento. How did the killer get to the house? Wouldn't someone have reported dropping a hitchhiker nearby or having seen a man walking along the road? The closest town was Coloma, two and a half miles to the north. Maybe it was two men who arrived by car and one of them took Nancy's car. We can't imagine that there was a big market for stolen Buick station wagons and driving around in the car of a murder victim is a good way to end up on death row. If you already had a car, why risk taking one that would be so hot? The Blazies, who thought they knew everything about Phyllis's case, had never heard about the murder of Nancy Kingsley. There were two reasons for this. The only Sacramento coverage of Nancy's case was one story, seven sentences, on page B3, and Eldorado investigators never worked the Blazy and Kingsley cases together or even looked at the possibility of a shared killer. They remained convinced that the man who had ordered the hit on Phyllis had died in 1978. On Monday, November 25th, 1991, Cindy Warner had never heard of the murders of Phyllis and Nancy, and she felt perfectly safe alone in her sister's new house in Granite Bay. Cindy was a 35-year-old married mother of two little girls. She and her husband had recently moved to Rancho Cordova to be close to her older sister's family. Cindy was 5'5", 135 pounds with brown hair, hazel eyes, and glasses. She was active in her church, and her family was her entire life. To say Cindy was a low-risk victim would be a gross understatement. She was a no-risk victim. Susan and Phil, Cindy's sister and brother-in-law, had just moved from their home in Rancho Cordova to their new custom home in Granite Bay. The house was set back off Auburn Folsom Road behind a six-foot fence. It was one of three new homes that shared a private drive, but they were the first to move in, and the other houses were still under construction. Cindy and her husband were both helping out that morning, 
Cindy had dropped her four-year-old daughter at the Capital Christian Center Day School and taken her 11-month-old with her to clean the new house. They arrived in Granite Bay at about 8 a.m. Meanwhile, Cindy's husband was loading up some wood from Susan and Phil's old house in Rancho Cordova. At about 12.30, Susan and Phil left for a meeting in Roseville. Cindy was cleaning a bathroom, and the baby was in her high chair at the dining room table, snacking on some Cheerios. Cindy's husband left Rancho Cordova with the wood, stopped to pick up his four-year-old, and arrived at the Granite Bay house at about 1.15 p.m. Nothing at the house seemed amiss. Cindy's car was parked in the driveway, and her husband could hear the baby crying inside. He rang the bell, but got no answer, and started trying all of the doors until he found one unlocked. Inside, he found his daughter, still in her high chair, with unfinished Cheerios. She was crying hysterically. Cindy's coat and shoes were in the house, and the only items out of place were a can of bathroom cleaner and a rag found on the carpet in the hallway. Cindy, wearing blue jeans and a bright pink sweater, and her taupe-colored vinyl purse had vanished. After searching the house and area and calling Susan and Phil at their meeting, Cindy's husband called 911. Placer County investigators were immediately alarmed and started bringing in search teams. They released Cindy's photo to the media, and at 3.08 p.m., detectives called the Rancho Cordova branch of Wells Fargo Bank that had issued Cindy's ATM card and asked officials there to put an alert on the card. The search continued the next day, Tuesday. Thirty deputies and volunteers worked with dogs and a helicopter to search the fields and woods around the house. They found no clues. Cindy's husband and brother-in-law agreed to polygraph exams, and investigators considered them both clear of any involvement in Cindy's disappearance. They were also able to check the alibi of Cindy's ex-boyfriend, and he was also cleared. Since the other two houses on the drive were still under construction, investigators checked the background and alibi of every person who worked on the project. Placer detectives came up with nothing. They had no motive, witnesses, or suspects. The first real clue in Cindy's disappearance came nine days later, on December 4th, when detectives made an inquiry at Wells Fargo regarding Cindy's account. It was then that they were informed that Cindy's ATM card had been used at 4 p.m. on the afternoon of her abduction. That was 52 minutes after law enforcement put a freeze on the account. Wells Fargo both allowed the transaction to go through and failed to notify anyone in law enforcement or Cindy's family that the card had been used. Cindy's family later filed a $5 million negligence lawsuit against Wells Fargo, but did not prevail. Investigators immediately gathered at the location of the transaction to conduct interviews and obtain surveillance footage. Unfortunately, the video of the person using the ATM had been taped over after a week, and nobody from the store remembered anything about that afternoon. All detectives knew was that someone had used the card and Cindy's PIN to withdraw $40 cash from the machine at the AMPM Mini Market located at Auburn Boulevard and Greenback Lane in Citrus Heights. They didn't know if the video would have shown Cindy, her kidnapper, or both. Obviously, this case now looks like Nancy's 1977 abduction in reverse. Cindy was taken in Granite Bay, a mile and a half from where Nancy was almost killed 14 years earlier. Cindy's kidnapper then drove down to Citrus Heights and used her card on Greenback Lane, exactly a mile and a half west of the shopping center where Nancy had been kidnapped. While it's possible that it's all total coincidence, it's not as if either Citrus Heights or Granite Bay has ever been a hotbed for daytime kidnappings of low-risk women. You can probably guess where Cindy's case went next the foothills above Auburn. On Saturday, December 14th, at about 3.30 p.m., a 24-year-old man from the town of Forest Hill was hunting for quail between Forest Hill and Baker Ranch. He found Cindy face down in an area of tall pines and underbrush. She was wearing nothing but her bra. The only outward signs of violence were angry red ligature marks around her neck. No matching rope or cord was found at or near the scene. 
Criminalists from the State Department of Justice and Placer County detectives searched the area looking for shoe prints, fiber evidence, hair, and soil samples. They were unable to locate her socks, jeans, sweater, underpants, and purse. Those items have never been found. Investigators determined that Cindy likely was not murdered where she was found. It was impossible to drive all of the way to her location, so she had to be carried or dragged. The site was 50 yards off Auburn Forest Hill Road, just past the end of a dirt logging road. There was no sign that she had been restrained or beaten, and there were no signs of sexual assault found at autopsy. Additional labs were all negative for the presence of seminal fluid, sperm, or saliva, including later testing of her bra. At that point, the case was already highly unusual. With a daytime kidnapping from a $350,000 house in a county with a violent crime rate so low, they didn't qualify for federal law enforcement grants. All for what? $40? The killer risked being caught at the house, many marked, and at the end of a logging road to make Cindy withdraw $40? The investigative answer to all of this seems fairly straightforward. Find witnesses. Someone must have seen something at the house, ATM, or logging road. Did anyone find Cindy's purse or missing clothing? Unfortunately, the investigation took a very different turn after two Placer County pathologists concluded that Cindy had only been dead about four or five days before she was found. Therefore, investigators surmised, she was kept alive by her kidnapper and held in captivity for almost two weeks. That finding led to a profile of the killer that we feel drove the investigation off the rails. Granite Bay killer, probably a loner. The profile prepared by Special Agent Michael Proden of DOJ's Investigations Unit says the killer is most likely described as a white male in his late 20s to mid-30s and is not overly aggressive. The killer knew that Warner would be found alone at the Granite Bay house and wanted a woman to fulfill a certain scenario he had planned. When the plan failed, he killed her to avoid identification. After her abduction, Warner remained alive up to two weeks, which disrupted the killer's routine. During this time, he encouraged his friends, neighbors, and family to stay away from him, Roden said. The killer probably showed behavioral changes after Warner's body was found, including anxiety, differences in consumption of alcohol, drugs, and food, an increase or decrease in religious beliefs, and changes in sleeping habits. Proden said the killer may try to change his appearance, manufacture an alibi when none is necessary, or move if he can afford it, offering a reasonable explanation for doing so. We're going to take a miss on the sad, passive loner with a guilty conscience and go with a cold, calculating killer who didn't bat an eye when Cindy's body was found. Once again, Placer investigators asked the community for help and tips, but presented an impossibly narrow description of the offender. What if your husband behaved completely normally, didn't have a woman trapped alive in your basement for two weeks, and seemed happy with his current hairstyle, job, and residence? What if you knew a man you had reason to suspect, but you didn't notice a disruption in his routine for two weeks the previous fall? The worst part of this profile is how unscientific it is. In fact, the science in the case showed that Cindy's body still had a measurable level of Tylenol in her blood at the time of her death, likely the same Tylenol she was known to have taken on the morning she disappeared. Since Tylenol breaks down quickly within the body, Cindy either was killed within six hours of being kidnapped, or the killer gave her more Tylenol. That would mean that Cindy's body was either stored somewhere cold until shortly before her body was found, or the rate of decomposition for the frigid mountain location was miscalculated, and she was there the entire time. In addition to the Tylenol evidence, Cindy still had manicured nails and shaved legs, and no signs of being bound, restrained, tortured, or beaten. There was no demand for ransom, and we know that the killer was free to use the ATM at 4 p.m. We wish we could see a modern analysis of the temperature at the body site during those three weeks and the expected rate of decomposition. At an elevation of 3,685 feet in December, it seems like a valid open question. Additionally, the lab did not find evidence that Cindy's body had been frozen, so we would be talking about someone keeping her in a cooler or refrigerator for more than two weeks. We've seen no evidence that investigators were able to find any witnesses 
who had been at the Forest Hill location while Cindy was missing, and could confirm a period where her body had not been present. We would like to see a new investigation that explored the possibility that Cindy was kidnapped at 12.45 p.m., driven 45 minutes to Forest Hill Road, and killed that afternoon. The drive to the ATM at Greenback Lane and Auburn Boulevard would have taken about 50 minutes, and Cindy was strangled, so there was no blood. There would have been plenty of time to kill Cindy, dispose of her clothing and purse, drive to the ATM, and be home before dinner. Seven years after Cindy's murder, the lead investigator publicly argued against the physical and circumstantial evidence and told the press that Cindy had been kept alive for at least two weeks after her abduction. It will be impossible to investigate any potential suspect without resolving this huge discrepancy in the evidence. The other physical evidence in the case is both sparse and muddled, maybe intentionally so. There are no known witnesses who saw the suspect or his vehicle. There were no fingerprints found at the kidnapping scene. Investigators did recover an unidentified cigarette butt from the walkway leading to the front door. DNA testing failed to develop a profile, and it was negative for fingerprints. The evidence photo of the filter and filter paper looked pristine. It does not look as if a person put the cigarette in his mouth or dragged smoke through it. Tests were unable to pull any male DNA profile from Cindy's body and bra. The lab found some unidentified green wool fibers on her neck and in her hair, and these appeared to match similar green fibers found in a brown paper bag in a garbage pile at a car pullout a few hundred feet from Cindy's body. In the paper bag were four beer cans, a pornographic videotape, and pornographic magazines. The lab was able to develop prints from at least one of the beer cans and the videotape, but it is unclear if they matched each other. Investigators were not able to identify the owner of the fingerprints. Past attempts to develop a DNA profile from the items in the bag, including the empty beer cans, were unsuccessful. The bag of porn led investigators down a new convoluted path. They decided that Cindy's killer was the owner of that porn, and that it provided the motive for Cindy's murder. From that, they developed the theory that the killer was a sexual deviant who was into specific sex acts depicted in the porn, that he had targeted Cindy for these acts, kidnapped her, but her Christian values caused her to resist, and she was killed. Investigators stated that when they identified the fingerprints from the items in the bag, they would have their killer. Our first question is, why have these fingerprints gone unidentified? How likely is it that a killer sex deviant has never been arrested? Second, how certain is the match between the green fibers in the bag and on Cindy's body? And what was the original source of the fibers? Third, how do investigators know that the fibers were not transferred to both the bag and the body from a third source at the scene? Based on scrape marks, hair arrangement, and the fact that Cindy's bra was slightly rolled up in the back, it appears she was dragged on her back by her feet at least a short distance. The fibers were only found on her neck and hair near the scrape marks, leading us to wonder if she picked them up near the area where she was found. The porn bag was found in a pile of discarded items, and the transfer could have occurred there. Fourth, how do we know that the bag wasn't planted by the killer as a false clue? either to send law enforcement looking for the wrong offender or meant to frame someone else for the crime. We have a few alternate ideas about Cindy's kidnapping and murder. We doubt that she was personally targeted since it would have been difficult for anyone to know where she would be, and if she'd been followed in the morning, the killer could have grabbed her when she was alone for several hours earlier in the day. The house had two attractive teen daughters who had just moved from Rancho Cordova, and it's possible that they were the targets although one wouldn't expect them to be home on a weekday. It's possible that the house was chosen because it was new construction. That's an obvious theme running through both the unsolved cases and those attributed to D'Angelo. We're not sure if that has something to do with construction, the ease of moving around an area with a lot of strangers working, or even an eco-motive. D'Angelo was an avid outdoorsman, and we've begun to wonder if he was angry about development spoiling his favorite recreation areas. 
Our best guess is that the killer was already in the house when Cindy encountered him. It appears that she was holding the can of cleaner and rag in each hand and dropped them on the hallway carpet. We imagine she was held at gunpoint and told that he just wanted money. Cindy left her shoes, coat, and baby, but took her purse. We also know that the killer had her ATM code, so there must have been a robbery pretense at some point. Cindy's car remained at the house, so either she or the killer drove his car. We remembered from Nancy's kidnapping in 1977 that the man had ordered her to remove items of clothing as she drove, presumably to control her and make it less likely that she would jump out half-naked. Maybe Cindy's case was like that, or she was just very compliant. Although it goes against everything investigators believe about the case, we feel it's likely that she was taken directly to the secluded spot where she was found and probably killed in the car parked at the pullout. The killer then carried and dragged her to the area off the path by a fallen tree. We're confused about the weapon used to strangle her. It had to be extremely thin. The marks on her neck look more like a necklace abrasion than the usual deep, heavily bruised areas in ligature strangulation. The object was no wider than a wire or a narrow cord. The killer took Cindy's clothing and purse, and they disappeared. Depending on what time Cindy was kidnapped and how long the killer spent on Forest Hill Road, the killer would have driven away from the scene sometime between 1.45 and 3 p.m. The drive back to the ATM in Citrus Heights was 50 to 55 minutes going the speed limit, and the card was used at 4 p.m., We can only think of two reasons for the killer to take the insane risk of using Cindy's card at a busy gas station full of cameras. One reason would be to make her family believe that she was still alive at 4 p.m. This could help the killer establish his alibi or make the family think she left voluntarily, which is unlikely since she left her shoes, coat, car, and infant daughter. The other reason we can imagine is that he was drawing a map or sending a message to law enforcement. Cindy was kidnapped from Auburn Folsom Road. Her ATM card was used on Auburn Boulevard, and she was found off Auburn Forest Hill Road. We're pretty sure that the clue here is Auburn. That also tied the crime back to Citrus Heights, Greenback Lane, and the area of Nancy's 1977 kidnapping. Did the killer use the card to test law enforcement and see if they were already looking for Cindy or how fast their response would be? We don't know, but we feel certain it wasn't about the $40. Just as Granite Bay's memory of Cindy's case began to fade, they were jolted by a new murder. Sherilyn Hockley was 39 and recently divorced in the fall of 1993. She had just started a new job teaching fifth grade at Eureka Elementary in Granite Bay, had just bought a house in Roseville not too far from her mother, and had a steady boyfriend. Her three teenage children had stayed with her husband in Chico, so her boyfriend was the first person to notice when she didn't come home from school on Friday, October 29, 1993. Co-workers had seen her at the end of the day after the students wrapped their Halloween festivities and everyone assumed she got in her van and drove away safely. By 7.30 that night, her boyfriend became worried enough to drive to the school and talk to the night janitor. It turned out that Sherilyn and her 1990 gray Dodge Caravan were missing and an APB for both was issued on Saturday morning. Although there had been no trouble at the school that afternoon, Witnesses did describe a stranger who seemed out of place. He was a muscular man in his mid-thirties, about six feet tall, with wavy dark brown hair just over his ears. He was wearing blue shorts and a faded, sweat-stained pink tank top. We've put the composite drawing of that man up on our website and Facebook page. Despite months of public pleas, he did not come forward and has never been identified. At 9 p.m. on Sunday, Halloween night, A Placer County Sheriff's deputy on routine patrol noticed a van parked in the trees just off Elmhurst Drive, yards from Oak Hills Elementary. Inside, he found Sherilyn lying between the second and third row seats. She'd been strangled with a thin rope or cord, and the killer had taken the ligature with him. She was fully clothed, 
with no visible injuries and no evidence of sexual assault. The area where the van was found was very isolated at night, and investigators believed that Sherilyn had been killed where she was parked. The elementary school where Sherilyn worked is only about three-quarters of a mile from the school where she was found, but that's as the crow flies. Driving the route requires a double back that adds a mile, but it still would have only been a trip of a few minutes at most. The medical examiner estimated that she died shortly after she was last seen, no later than early Saturday morning. Witness canvassing determined that the van had been seen by joggers and soccer players starting at first light on Saturday, so it's likely she was killed almost immediately. Money and other valuables were found in the van, so investigators quickly ruled out robbery as the motive. The lack of an obvious motive for a stranger to kill Sherilyn was puzzling. Was she kidnapped or did she give a ride to someone she knew? She'd not spoken to anyone of plans other than meeting her boyfriend for dinner. If she was killed by someone she knew, who would have had a motive and availability? Sherilyn's boyfriend and ex-husband were eliminated, and that left investigators with no viable suspects. Why would someone kidnap a well-liked teacher at school, drive a couple of minutes to another school, quickly kill her, and walk back to his own vehicle? To be fair to Placer County investigators, they did wonder if the case was connected to Cindy Warner's murder two years earlier. They disappeared two miles apart from each other in Granite Bay, were both low-risk victims, and were strangled with a thin ligature that was taken from the scene. However, investigators determined that the cases were not connected, stating that the cases were too, quote, dissimilar, and that Warner was kept alive for a period of time while Hockley's murder happened quickly. A year after Sherilyn's murder, investigators continued to believe that she had been killed by someone she knew. Quote, Warner was a stranger-type abduction, and the kidnapping and strangulation of Warner is not in any way connected to the abduction and strangulation last year of Sherilyn Hockley. We're sure about that, said Placer County Detective Bill Summers. Going back to the basics in these four cases, let's look at what investigators know, what they think, and what they can prove. Obviously, they can't prove who committed the murders. None of the cases have ever had an arrest. In fact, they don't even have an unidentified DNA profile to charge. Investigators think they have possible motives. Lacey was a revenge killing. Kingsley was killed to silence her as a witness to the car theft. Warner was either murdered by a frustrated sex deviant or robber. And Hockley's killer was someone she knew who had an unknown personal grudge. Given some of the statements made by law enforcement, it seems pretty clear that guesses and facts have become confused, and the cases need to be taken back to their beginnings, preferably by a team of outside cold case investigators who won't bring any prior bias about the evidence, motive, or suspects. We would also like to see some other cases reviewed by our fantasy cold case squad, all from 1977, starting with the PG&E case in March, Nancy's attempted murder in July, the kidnapping and murder of Kukendall and Riley in August, and the Best Sinclair double homicide in October. That would be five Placer County cases and three from El Dorado, including three with kidnappings in Sacramento County Sheriff's Jurisdiction, four daytime residential burglaries, four attacks in Granite Bay, three victims found off Auburn Forest Hill Road, three attacked off Auburn Folsom Road, and two associated with Greenback Lane. We feel that a case with 10 unsolved homicides and one attempted murder deserves a task force of top investigators. No more tired, cliché offender profiles or looking for the nearest deviant. A fact-based investigation that assumes nothing and starts from scratch. We're not going to spend a lot of time discussing D'Angelo here, and we're not saying that he committed these murders, or even that they were committed by the same offender, but the possibility is obvious. We desperately want all of these cases to get renewed attention, especially if fresh investigators can bring the killer or killers to justice. It is never too late for the family members still waiting for answers. All of that being said, There is something about D'Angelo that really bothers us, 
and that's the status of his marriage in 1991 and 1993. In November 91, Sharon filed for divorce in Sacramento County. No further action was taken on that petition, and although they remained married, it appears that Sharon took their three daughters and moved to Roseville. A few weeks later, Cindy Warner was kidnapped near Roseville, and her killer drew a map to Auburn Forest Hill Road, a road Joe and Sharon had lived on together, and then back down to Auburn Boulevard, the same street they lived right off in Citrus Heights. That timing, sequence, and mapping feels like a message, or maybe a warning. For whatever reason, Sharon abandoned that petition for dissolution in Sacramento, but filed a new petition with a request for DV protection in Placer County in August 1993. It seemed that Sharon was determined to divorce Joe, and she made the plan more permanent by buying a new house for her and the girls. She financed it herself leveraging not only the real property, but her law practice assets as well. She made sure that Joe waived all his community property rights. The house was hers and hers alone. The new house closed, and Sharon and the girls took possession on October 29, 1993. Presumably, they would have been busy and excited getting settled in that evening, while exactly three miles east of them, Sherilyn Hockley was being kidnapped and strangled in her van. Sharon never filed another piece of paper in the Placer County dissolution action, and in 2006, the court dismissed the case as abandoned. So why file for divorce twice, move to your own home, and separate your finances, yet remain legally married? We've heard people say that Sharon wanted to remain on Joe's health insurance, but she obviously would have considered that before filing for divorce, twice. We can't see any benefit to Sharon, but it's no mystery why Joe would have wanted that last legality to remain in place. Marital privilege in California is fairly complicated, but Joe and Sharon easily would have grasped all of the nuances of this issue in any potential criminal case. All private conversations between two spouses that occur while they are married are confidential, forever, unless both spouses agree they can be disclosed. This confidentiality survives divorce, but it has no effect on any other facts, such as what time a spouse came home or whether or not he was covered in blood. However, spouses may refuse to give evidence against each other while they're legally married. So how exactly would legal marriage continue to benefit Joe if he had criminal behavior to hide? Everything he ever said privately to Sharon would remain private. She cannot disclose it. That would not end with a divorce. Sharon may also refuse a subpoena. She does not have to answer questions or testify in any criminal proceeding against Joe. It's far from perfect protection for Joe. It only prevents law enforcement from forcing Sharon. She may still choose to testify. We notice that Sharon has once again filed for divorce, so hopefully law enforcement has all of the answers she can provide. We would sure like to know what she has to say about their time in Exeter. <laughs> 